Well, this morning, I, I want you to think for a moment just a little bit about us. Now, if you got your Bibles, I hope you do, go ahead and, and start making your way over to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6. That's where we're going to land this morning. But when you think about us, and I don't just mean us just like us sitting in this room, but I mean us like as, as human beings, uh, we often come to this place of, of are we going to trust or not? And sometimes there's a certain crisis of faith that happens in our lives as to whether or not we're really going to jump over that line of faith and trust. And I think oftentimes it is because we are such a, a people of consumption. Uh, we are a consuming kind of people. If you don't uh, really believe that, all you have to do is look back a couple of days to the 4th of July uh, to remember and to remind yourself like how big of a consuming kind of people we are. We like to eat and party and play, and we like loud music, and we like to laugh a lot, and obviously we like to blow stuff up. I mean, that's what we do on the 4th of July. I mean, you had neighbors that blew stuff up as well, uh, maybe way into the wee hours of the morning. If there needs to be another illustration of it, let me give to you the illustration of Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut is now the 11-time winner of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Yes, yeah, thank you, Tom. You know, everybody needs a hero. Um, Joey Chestnut a guy who is about my size ate 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes, beating his previous record of 72 hot dogs. Why? Why are you doing that? He, when he ate 74 hot dogs, it was 22,200 calories. Like, come on, man. I, and now, what's funny is that now the sportscasters have kind of gotten in on this a little bit, and it's a little bit serious, a little bit of a joke, and they're wondering, is Joey Chestnut one of the most dominant personalities in sports, and I use that term very loosely, that has, I mean, this is like the opposite of sports, okay? This is the opposite of what sports are supposed to be. But the fact that we have a hot dog eating contest that is televised nationally on a major network every year on the day that our nation celebrates its birthday. I mean, this, this is a little bit of a commentary about us, all right, that we are a consuming kind of people. But herein lies the trap that it is that we face as humanity. And, and it's one of these this versus that kind of thing. We face this trap of instant gratification versus long-term fulfillment. I mean, that's what it is that we wrestle with as human beings. That's why we come to a crisis of trust. It's because we are wondering, where am I going to invest my life? Into the instant gratification or into the long-term fulfillment of what it is that could possibly happen in my life. That's why over the next number of weeks, as we are going to go through a trek through the Gospel of John, chapters 6 and 7, I want to take you into a new series of messages on finding fulfillment. Because we're all looking for fulfillment. I want to take you into this series where we think about finding fulfillment, that we are not going to just lean on our feelings 
but that we're going to invest in our faith in order to see what is, is possible by the work of God. And so uh, you might want to jot that down and think about that, uh, that over these next few weeks, I want you to look at John chapter 6 and 7 through the lens of how it is that God is going to bring a different kind of fulfillment into your life. Let me read this passage beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 6. I'm going to read down through verse 21. It actually, uh, we're going to move through two different stories in Jesus' life. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip. Now, just let me pause for a moment here. Why Philip? I mean, come on. I mean, Jesus, you could have asked any of the other apostles, any of the other ones. And so as I'm studying this week, as I'm trying to get ready, I'm like, why has it got to be Philip? I mean, why couldn't it have been Peter? or Andrew? Why couldn't it have been one of the other guys? Thomas, Judas, somebody else. But he asked Philip. So he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Uh, let's pray for a moment. Father, what we don't know, we're going to ask for you to teach us this morning. What it is that we don't have, but you know that we need to have, we pray that you put it into our lives. And what we are not yet, we pray that you would transform us so that we would look like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
This passage displays a crisis of trust and faith on a number of levels. So let me walk you through a couple of ideas and make some commentary on the Scripture this morning. The first that I want you to see is that adversity is a doorway. That's not always the way that we see adversity. As a matter of fact, it's generally the opposite as to how we think about adversity. But in this passage, adversity really is the doorway. Now, think about the adversities that, the, that all of these people are facing in this moment. You know, har- harsh realities are really more common than they are rare. We face more harsh realities in life than we face easy realities. Uh, the harsh realities are all around us. Our, our newscasts are filled with them. Your news feeds are filled with them. Uh, Facebook is filled with them of the harsh realities of life, where life goes sideways, where you get the wrong diagnosis that you didn't want, when your, your boss decides to go this way, when you thought the company was going this other way, when you were hoping the stock market was going to do this to your 401k and it did this other thing. Uh, harsh realities are just common in this world. And in this passage, what we see is that the odds are all stacked against everybody. The odds are against you. Here, the the apostles are with Jesus, and suddenly there's a crowd of 5,000 people that are following after them, and the odds are against them. Now, when it says that there are 5,000 men, there is, if we are just historically logical in this thing, it is likely that there is an equal number of women, so there's probably about 5,000 women, and then because there is a little tyke who brings up uh, his his food, it, it would seem that there's also children involved. So it's very easy to surmise that there's probably 15,000 or more people that are in this whole crowd. Uh, The odds are against them. But also, it's not just that the odds are against you, it's that it seems like this is an insurmountable problem. Like, this is a problem so big that you can't even see past the crest of it. It's like, it, it, it is that, it's that hillside, it's that mountain that, that you're hiking, and you just keep going. It just keeps going. It's like there's no end in sight to it. And there's this insurmountable problem of a hungry crowd, and then the apostles, when they're out in the boat, it's like this odds are against us, and it's this insurmountable problem that we're in a boat, in a storm, out on this giant lake. They didn't really have a word for lake. They called everything a sea. And, and it says that when the storm comes up and the apostles are in the boat, that they rowed three or four miles. Now, I don't know how many of you outside of Richard Wood inside of this room have rowed three or four miles. If you know Richard, uh, Richard is a kayaker. You can go out into his, out in the parking lot back here and see his giant kayak on top of his car. Now, I don't want to row three or four miles in a raging storm. That feels like the, an insurmountable problem. You know, when you're out in the middle of a, of a huge lake and this storm rolls up and it says, and the waters are churning around and they're out there paddling for their lives. This seems like an insurmountable problem. But then also adversity, the harsh realities we face, it's also the personal fear that all of this rises up within us. It says that they were afraid. In the middle of the storm, that's the normal human reaction. You're afraid. You're fearful. You're, you're anxious. All the anxieties bubble up to the surface. 
when you're facing this. But I want you to recognize that adversity is this doorway about how Jesus uses adversity. Jesus uses moments of adversity to reveal himself and purify our faith. This is why adversity is a doorway. It's because of the way Jesus uses it in our lives. Jesus is actively testing the faith of both Philip and all of the other followers. And so when you and I face these harsh realities, these odds that are stacked against us, these insurmountable problems, when we face our own fears rising up inside of us, this is a doorway where Jesus is actively testing our faith so that he can reveal himself and he can purify us, which is why I think he asked Philip this question, knowing what it is that he's going to do. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, that how he's going to feed this multitude of people that have sat down in this giant field. He knows exactly what he's going to do. But he asks Philip this question, just like in the very first, you know, in the creation story, when Adam and Eve are there in the Garden of Eden, and they sin for the first time, and they hide themselves, and then and, and God comes in the cool of the day, like he always did, to fellowship with them, and he says, Adam, where are you? It's not that God had lost Adam. Somehow the, the knowledge of where the two human beings that existed in the universe did not fall out of the mind of God. He asked the question in order to test Adam. He asked the question so that Adam would realize where he was. And here he's asking Philip this question. What are we going to do about this? We got all these people. We got all these hungry mouths. Philip, what are we going to do? And he asks him this question to test him. And then listening to Andrew, again, aware of what he's going to do, Andrew comes up and he says, well, I got a little bit of food. And then even arriving late to the boat... When here the apostles and the disciples are out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a storm raging all around them, they have, they've rowed three or four miles exhausted and terrified. Jesus is waiting because he knows what it is they need. And the testing that we face is the opportunity to grow better in our faith or bitter toward the world. This is what adversity does for us. We can grow better in our faith, or we can grow bitter toward the world. I want to encourage you today that whatever it is that you're facing, stop treating adversity like an adversary. Adversity is not your adversary. Adversity is your doorway to something new when oftentimes we treat it like a ditch to avoid. And it could be that the adversity that you are having to trek through right now the insurmountable odds that are stacked against you, the fear, the storm, all of the water that's churning about you, the rowing of three or four miles that you've already been through, that this is the adversity that God is going to use to reveal Himself in a deeper way through His Word and to refine your faith, to purify your faith. God wants to use adversity as a doorway, not a ditch to avoid. So don't treat it like an adversary. Secondly, your reaction to a crisis will reveal the object of your faith. Your reaction to whatever this crisis is, whatever this adversity is, it's going to reveal the object of your faith. Who is it that you trust in the middle of all of this when, when the odds seem stacked against you 
When the problem seems insurmountable, when the fear rises up inside of you, the, your reaction reveals what it is that you trust in. And our reactions are oftentimes the same as the disciples. I want you to look as to see how is it that they reacted here. Their reactions are, are, is that they had this human, like they were ready to, to lean in. They were ready to do something. And the human reaction is for strategy. This is what Philip comes up with. Marketplace solutions. The amount of money or whatever it is that we need to raise in order to fix this thing. When Jesus says to Philip, what are we going to do about this? we got all these hungry mouths to feed. The first thing out of his mouth is, well, there's not even 200 denarii that would feed all of these people a little bit. Now, a denarii was equal to one day's wage. So Philip was picking out a huge amount of money that would have been impossible to raise in the moment in order to feed this huge crowd of people. I mean, he was trying to overreach and, and exaggerate his answer in order to show Jesus just how impossible of a situation that they had gotten themselves into. And so he immediately went to the marketplace solution. Well, even if we had 200 days worth of money, of wages, of people working 12 hours a day for 200 days in a row, we wouldn't have enough food around here for everybody to just have a little bit. This is an overwhelming kind of thing. But he's trying to come up with a strategy. we got to raise enough money to go buy enough food. Andrew's answer is scavenging. He, he looks around and he says, well, who's got some food? Look, here's a little kid. Now, I know, I know that all of our little Sunday school posters, you know, tell this cute little story of this little bitty toddler who walks up to the disciples with his baskets of food and offers them in such a way that it's this great show of faith or sign of force of, of, of his spiritual life. But the reality, I think, is really that Andrew goes into a scavenging mode. Let me see Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you got this big problem. I, Jesus, we know that you're in charge of everything, and you got this big problem. You got all these people. You got all these mouths to feed. Let me see what I've got sitting around that I can give you, Jesus, so that we can fix this problem. You ever found yourself in that mode of let me figure out what I've got so I can help Jesus fix this problem in my life? So we go to strategy, we go to scavenging, and then we go to straining. Uh, the apostles are in the boat. They're out on the water. And the storm comes up. Now, they've just been with Jesus. They just saw him miraculously feed probably 15,000-plus people with five loaves of Wonder Bread and two snook, all right? This is what Jesus has just done. And now they're out on a boat, and they're worried that they're not going to make it. And so what do they do when they face problems? They just row harder. Row harder and make it through the storm. Just buck up. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do it yourself. Don't, don't wait on anybody else, but you got to make sure that you're taken care of. And our reaction to these crises reveal the, the object of our faith. And here's why 
I've coupled these two stories together. Very easily could have preached two different messages, but here's why I think that they've got to go together for us in these moments. It's because like the apostles, oftentimes we see Jesus doing things at a distance for other people. I mean, they were standing kind of on the sidelines with this whole feeding the multitudes. Like, most likely, the apostles didn't have a hunger problem. They, they probably had food for themselves. Everywhere they went, they were taken care of. Jesus was welcomed into people's homes. They, one of the guys of the 12 apostles was the one who held the money bag. You know, people, because Jesus was an, an, an you know, first century rabbi, people gave offerings uh, to, for his teachings. It, it is likely that the 12 apostles had food for themselves. It was all these other people that had a problem. And they were able to watch this crisis kind of at a little bit of a personal distance to see what God was going to do about those people's problems. But then they encountered their own problem. They had to move from the place where they were watching Jesus do something for a whole bunch of other people into the space where they were the ones facing incalculable odds, insurmountable problems. They were having to face their own internal fears. And this is the place where we as believers have to move from watching God do things in other people's lives, convinced, oh yeah, you over there with that diagnosis, you over there with that family crisis, you up there with that problem at work, and you over there with whatever it is, temptation or decision-making in your life that you got to deal with, just remember that God will help you. Now suddenly, they're the ones in the storm. They're the ones who've got to decide whether or not they're going to have faith. They're the ones who've got to decide, are we going to just buck up and make it through ourselves, or are we going to trust in the Christ who just provided in a miraculous kind of way? And we all move through this. I did. It was seven years ago. It was on a Sunday morning, very similar to this. We were at our church that I was serving at in Nashville. The boys were a lot younger than they are now. We were uh, leaving the church. I was working at Lifeway Christian Resources at that point in the research division. I, I was flying high, doing great, had a great job, had a great salary, had, had, every, had the tiger by the tail, I was uh, in the middle of a giant research project that was unlike anything that had ever been done on the North American continent about discipleship and in the church. Uh, it, just, it was one of those kind of passion projects in my life. And, and we were leaving church, and we were going to go to the restaurant, grab a quick bite to eat, and then Angie was going to drive me to the airport, and I was going to get on a plane and fly to Los Angeles where I was going to meet two of my spiritual heroes Guys that are just absolutely killing it in terms of ministry world. I mean, just doing just phenomenal work. And I was going to get to go out there and spend a couple of days with them. And walking out of the door of that church building, Angie says to me, the same thing that we all say to each other walking out of these doors, where do you want to go eat? And in my mind, I said to her where I wanted to go eat. And where I wanted to go eat, it didn't matter where it was, I just wanted to go somewhere close. And so as we were walking out of the door, she said, where do you want to eat? And in my mind, I said, somewhere close. But nothing came out of my mouth. And so as we're walking across the parking lot, the guys had already run off to the car, and Angie's rattling off the different options that we've got that are close by. And she says, 
So where do you want to go eat? And again, I said, in my mind, somewhere close. And nothing came out of my mouth. And so she stopped, and she turned around and looked at me, and she said, my mouth was moving, but it was just like garbled talk coming out. Some of it's kind of like a sermon. Um, and I, I put up my finger like this, like, give me a second here. Well, what had happened is my left carotid artery had decided to try to kill me, and it had collapsed, and it had cut off the blood to my brain just long enough to shut down my speech center. So she sat me down in the middle of the parking lot, an ambulance was called, I was rushed to the hospital thinking that I was bleeding in my brain and dying in the moment. And very blessedly, uh, I did not have a full-blown stroke, but I had a, a trans-ischemic attack, a mini-stroke. And so here I was, a guy, 41 years old, working on a passion project, getting ready to go to L.A. to meet some of my spiritual heroes, doing everything I wanted to in life, preaching at a church, serving at a, at a company that I have a great deal of respect for, getting to do really cool stuff for the kingdom of God, telling everybody else in the world how to follow Jesus. And I had a doctor standing over my bed saying, wow, you really dodged a bullet. Nobody ever survives this. Everybody usually dies of this. We don't know why this happened to you. And by the way, you need to go home and not work for the next month. I was not good at not working not for a, a, not for a month, not for a week, not for a day. And so I had to suddenly decide who I was going to trust in. Because I had been telling all these other people during the midst of their crises, during the midst of all of their turmoil, like you need to trust in Jesus that He's going to help you make that big decision. You need to trust in Jesus for the, the strength that you need to be able to get through this. You need to trust in Jesus for this. And now I'm suddenly sitting in the chair at home, being told by my doctors, don't even check your email. Now, the guys on staff here at the church know how pain, yeah, John, yes, you know how painful that would be for me. They said, you just got to sit down. And so, I had to just sit and just trust. And it, it wasn't easy, is it? No, it's hard when suddenly you're, you're put back on your heels, but your reaction to this crisis is going to reveal who it is that you really trust in. And I had to work through that process of really trusting in my upward mobility through the ranks of the ministerial world as to who I was going to be fulfilled by. Was it the instant gratification of ministry project after ministry project after ministry project where I was going to get all of my worth, where I was going to feel fulfilled, where I was going to gain all of the hope that I needed and all the happiness that I could pile on top of myself, or was I going to go for the eternal long-term fulfillment that I could get in Jesus? Was I going to trust in strategy or in scavenging or in straining, or was I going to trust in the Savior? That's why in all of this that we see here in John chapter 6, what, what we get to here at the end is that Jesus is offering Himself to these people. We see Him offering Himself in the fact that when this multitude has got to be filled with food and their bellies are empty, Jesus makes a personal intervention into this scenario. 
He doesn't say to Philip and the other apostles, well, I brought them, guys. You're going to have to feed them, and walks off. Instead, it's the personal intervention of Jesus. It is His own personal prayer that makes the difference here. It is Jesus the Son speaking to God the Father that initiates the miracle. Jesus personally intervenes in the midst of what seems like the odds being stacked against them. It is the divine provision. It it is when the, the odds are insurmountable, Jesus is the one that provides. It's not our scavenging around for what it is that we have or what it is that we can drum up or how it is that we can entertain people as a church or what it is that I can do to the right song and dance in front of God to impress Him so that He'll do something cool in my life. But it is the divine decision of provision that provides for a hungry crowd and apostles trapped in a raging storm. It is His gracious presence that changes everything. Jesus is offering Himself, His presence that is gracious. One of the things that I I want you to take note of is that when the apostles are out on the boat in the middle of the storm, and the water is churning, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're afraid, and they're anxious, and Jesus comes strolling out on the water, He does not take it as the opportunity to lecture the boys. He doesn't doesn't beat them down in the midst of of their already fear-filled hearts. Instead, he does the opposite. He said, it's I, don't be afraid. I've showed up like I always show up. It is his gracious presence into our lives that makes all the difference. Jesus is always going to be enough. He's always going to be enough. Now, in, in, in other times, I've talked to you about the Old Testament false god that gets listed time and time again that the Israelites fell into problems of worshiping a, a false god named Baal. Ba- Baal was the old, ancient false god of basically fertility. He was kind of the Zeus of the Babylonian and the Egyptian empire's religious kind of, uh, you know, pantheon of gods. He was the chief of all of the gods that were out in the universe, and he was the god of fertility. But to put it in the most basic of terms, basically, Baal is the god of more. If you want more crops, worship Baal. You want more cows, worship Baal. You want more money, worship Baal. You want more children, worship Baal. Baal was the god of more. But here's the great thing. Jesus is the god of enough. Jesus is always enough because Jesus is providing himself. Jesus is providing his presence. Jesus is intervening on our behalf. Jesus is providing what it is that you need in your life, whereas Baal always demands a sacrifice out of you so that maybe you can get more stuff on the earth, Jesus shows up to give you more of the stuff of eternity. So what is it that you need to do today? Uh, Let me give to you three ideas very quickly as to what you need to do. Number one, embrace adversity. It is the doorway to understanding Jesus. 
You've watched from a distance, but now you need to own it in your own life. Because adversity is a doorway to faith. It is not a place to run away from. The adversity is not going to go away just because you close your eyes and, and try to hide your face from it. The adversity stays. And so allow God to use adversity in your life to reveal His provisions and His protections and His presence. Allow Him to purify your faith. Also, rest in faith rather than fight with your own strategy. When was the last time you actually rested in faith in the face of adversity? Our natural inclination is either to throw up our hands or row harder. Now, most of us just try to row harder. We just try to work, you know, just furiously in life at fixing stuff. But there's a point at which you've got to just rest in faith rather than trying to fight with your own strategy. And when it really comes down to is just decide that Jesus is enough because you and the world are not. I, I like you. I love you. I'm for you. But let me tell you something. You are not enough. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough wit. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have enough willpower. You do not have enough. Uh, left to our own devices, we are not enough. Left to try to figure it out with the world, the world is not enough. Jesus is the only one who is enough. And the miracles that Jesus does point not to your future prosperity, but to His divine nature. They don't point toward you getting a Learjet. They point to His gracious presence always being enough in your life. I want to encourage you this morning because I, I know for certain there's a lot of us that are facing adversity. You're facing decisions in your life that you don't know whether to turn right or left. Uh, you're facing a, 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 a pinch point of emotions in your life where you're, gonna, you're making choices day by day between depression and finding your worth in Jesus. You're facing circumstances in your life that are hard, insurmountable, odds stacked against you. And you've got to decide that this is not something that you have to be filled with anger about, but that you can embrace this adversity because it is the place where you will meet God as He provides the gracious presence of Jesus, both for our souls and for our everyday living. Let's pray together.